Well, I wanted to speak to you today on the subject of fearing God. It's been on my mind a lot over the last weeks. I've been thinking about it. And um, I listened to a series of messages that were given in 1970 by a pastor named Al Martin. Uh, So they're, what is that, 47 years ago uh, that he gave these messages. But they were extremely helpful for me. And I was talking to Dick last week about it, and he reminded me of something that Duncan Campbell happened to Duncan Campbell when he came to the Hebrides Islands to speak, and they had that revival. Some men who met him to take him to the church that he was going to speak at asked him, Mr. Campbell, are you walking with God? And he said, I fear God. And they said something to the effect, well... That's good enough for us. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. You know, you don't hear that term very often, um, the fear of God, uh, in terms of describing a person. But it used to be that somebody was referred to who was a, was a Christian who was referred to as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. But you just don't hear that very much anymore. But... Um, <clears throat> Al Martin was quoting, I think he was quoting John Murray. Um, He said that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. And then Martin went on to say, take away the soul and all you have left is a smelling carcass. Take away the fear of God from a person and all you have left is dead religion and Phariseeism. There's no life, you see. There's a structure, but there's no life. And so what I would like to do then is just kind of look at just a little introduction here, and then we'll look at a couple of ways the fear of God is used, and then maybe three or four points to make off of that. In Proverbs 1.7, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And when you look that up, beginning of knowledge, it also means it's the chief part of knowledge. It's not just the beginning, but it's the chief part of it. And um, Al Martin, I liked his analogy. He likens it to learning to read and write. What's the first thing you do when you learn to read and write? You learn the letters. You learn the ABCs, the alphabet. And that's the beginning of learning. But it doesn't stop there. You use that throughout your whole life. Every word that we use, no matter how simple or complex, or every concept is just those letters in different configurations. But it's the basic letters. It's the foundation, you see, of our ability to read and write and to comprehend things. And he says, so it is with the fear of God. It's the introduction that we have to who God is. But we never lose it. We never get, we never get past that. It's the introduction have a true understanding of God, and it's the chief part of that understanding of God, the fear of God. And uh, it's, 
it's like I said, we never get past it. Psalm 19.9 says the, the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. So it, it goes on in the Christian's life. His whole life is the fear of God is, is right there in it. <clears throat> when you read about who God identified as a godly man in the Old Testament, you remember the book of Job, Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? What is, how does Job describe? In verse 1 of Job 1, it says that Job was a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Fearing God and turning away from evil. That's God's description of a godly man. Fearing God and turning away from evil. <clears throat> so what does that mean? to fear God? What does it look like? And um, I was just telling Dick, Mason gave three messages on this. I'm embarrassed to say this, but he gave three messages on this last year. And um, some of that, a lot of it, I've forgotten. You know, I started studying it and some of it came back to me. But uh, And Dick alluded to it uh, when he was talking about Daniel just two weeks ago. But I feel like I'm okay to talk about it because in Second Peter 1, it says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. So what I'm hoping to do today is just to um, share some points that many of you have heard already, but just to rekindle it in your mind and f keep it fresh in your heart. So when we think about the fear of God and how fear is used, there's two, two main ways I want to talk about. One is just the way we would use it, and that is you're afraid of something. You're fearful. And, I, and um, it would be like this 10-year-old little boy, he's walking home from school, and he rounds the corner and in his eyesight, he catches the neighborhood bully's eye. Now, he's had some experience with this kid before. He's bigger, and he's been on the receiving end of some of his taunts and his bullying. The, the feeling that that little kid gets is one of great dread and terror. He's, he does not want to come in contact. And what he wants to do he wants to go and hide. He wants to get away from them and hide. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 3. That type of fear is what we see in Genesis 3, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to revert or um, refer to a lot of scriptures, so don't feel like you have to keep up on everything. I'll have you look up a couple maybe. <clears throat> but this is what it's... You now, in the garden, Adam had communion with God. He was walking with God in the cool of the garden until he sins. And then when sin comes in, this is what it says. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So there's two aspects there. He sinned. And he became afraid of God. He sinned and he knew it. 
and he became afraid of God because there's some consequences to sin. And he hid himself. He didn't want to be around God. He hid himself from God. So this consequence of sinning causes you to want to withdraw from God and you become afraid. So what do you do? You find ways to not think about it. You find distractions of various sorts. You know, and that that's a whole different thing. I'm not going there, but I was thinking about that. You have all kinds of things that ways people hide themselves from the present or they think they're hiding themselves from God. What they're doing is hiding the thoughts of God. <clears throat> so there's an example in the Old Testament of Adam. We have an example in the New Testament, and this one I'll have you turn to. This is in Acts chapter 5, and many of you re, re know this account. This is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> okay, now, just a little background here. A lot of the people, the disciples, after people were converted, people were taking their possessions and selling the excess and bringing money and laying it at the disciples' feet to be distributed. And then this is what it says in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? Apparently he had said this is, what, this is all there was. Gave it to him, but he lied, and he held some of it back. While it remained unsold, did it not? <clears throat> let's see. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. So here he lies to God, and God judges him right there. He, he's dead. And fear came upon people. And then the, you, as you read the, finish reading the account, you have the account of um, his wife comes in, and the same thing. Tells the same story. She dies. And then in verse 11, it says, um, when they brought their, uh, whoops, sorry, wrong place. <clears throat> In verse 11, it says, great fear came over the whole church. So there's this idea of the fear of God coming in. You know, one of the things about this is that you have to realize is God is not somebody to mess with. You don't play games with God. God is real. It's a serious issue, and it's, he's real, and there are real consequences for sin. And you see this brought out in Hebrews 10, in verse 31, where it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's in the context of judgment. It's a terrifying thing. So it's not light. And even Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 28 said, 
And fear not them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So this is a, it's a serious thing, uh, and we need to realize that, and people need to realize that, and uh, many people don't. There's no thought of God before them. A second aspect of how fear is used in the Bible is one that we don't use very often, and that is to mean reverence. Dick brought this out in the book of Daniel. Reverence, awe, veneration. Um, And this would be the kind of respect or the kind of fear that a person would have, let's say a, a big dignitary, maybe a king or a president that, well, maybe not our president, but a, a king would, that everybody respected was coming, and you went to see the king. And the king looked at you and said, I want to have lunch with you today. You'd be like, wow, me? Who am I? Why would you want to have, why would I be welcomed into the presence of the king? That type of picture is what you see with the fear of God predominantly for the Christian. That's the predominant fear of God for the Christian. And a good example of that is in Luke chapter 5, and you can turn to that one also. Luke chapter 5, I'll just give you a little brief account of of this, and then we'll read a few verses. Luke chapter 5 is where the disciples had been fishing all night, and they caught nothing. Now, these are professional fishermen. These aren't guys who go out on the weekend and just try to catch a couple of fish. They're professionals. They know how to fish. They caught nothing. And the Lord says to them, he asks them, and they said, no, we haven't caught anything. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. What are they thinking? Okay, we'll do it. But we probably they probably had done that. But they do it. And the nets are so full, it describes the nets as tearing, and they have to bring another boat. They had two boats. They bring another boat over to put some of the fish in, and by that time, both boats are getting low in the water from the weight of the the catch. This is Peter's response in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You You see the... There's such an awe of who Christ is. He had a picture of who Christ was. He saw, and he saw his own condition in in light of that. He says, depart from me. Now, he's not running and hiding like Adam, but but we'll just read down here. Verse 9, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on I will be, you will be catching men. <clears throat> Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. They had this huge catch. They left it all and followed Jesus. They followed him. Now, this type of fear and veneration and reverence is not one that causes you to run and hide. It brings you in. You want to follow him because he's so wonderful. You want to follow him. 
You see the same exact thing in John 4 where Jesus meets that woman, that sinful woman at the well. <clears throat> and he says to her, he, he reveals to her in his, his uh, encounter with her, he reveals to her her sin. And that doesn't put her off. What she does, she just goes and tells everybody in town about him. This is what it says in verse um, 29 and 30 of John 4. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. See, she wasn't running and hiding from him. She had already had this encounter with him. And then she says, this is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. See, she's wanting people to come to him. She's had this encounter with Christ. She wants people to come to him. And he draws people like that to himself. When they see him for who he is, when you see Christ for who he is, you're not put off. You're drawn to him. That's what we're talking about, that type of fear. It's an amazing thing. This is the predominant type of fear that the Christian has in his life. He is drawn to Christ with cords of love. We don't want to do anything that would get in between that relationship. This isn't a thing of, I have to not do this or I can't do that. That's not what we're talking about. We don't want to do that anymore, those sinful ways. We don't want to do them because it hinders our relationship. And we want to have that relationship with Christ. You probably have been in meetings, I have, where the Holy Spirit is obviously present. It's The Lord is there. And here's two people that come into the meeting. The Spirit is hovering. It's there. The Holy Spirit is moving. One person is convicted of their sin, and they're broken and repentant and come to the Lord and want to follow him. The other one's sitting there twiddling their thumbs like, when's this going to be over? What's the difference? Holy Spirit comes and puts the fear of God in one and leaves the other one like they they were. It's frightening. We need to ask God to, to give us a sense of that holy fear of God. And as we gather here at meetings. Well, what I would like to do in the brief time, I have about 15 minutes that remains, I would like to just identify three or four points that we can take and have some scriptures of how this can apply to our life. And um, first one I've already mentioned, and that is Psalm 19, that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So it, it lasts. We never pass out of that. But it's also this idea of clean and pure, clean and pure. This is the type of fear or reverence Christ had for the Father. Everything he did was for the glory and honor of the Father. There was a sense of reverence for God, the Father, the Son, reverencing the Father. And so this fear is clean, it's pure, and it's not something that we ever get over. It lasts forever. Another thing that I was very encouraged by is in Psalm 34, Verse 11, and that is that we can grow in our knowledge of the fear of God. We can grow in that as Christians. 
And this is what David says in that psalm. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. I will teach you to fear the Lord. How is a person taught to fear the Lord? Well, one way is you have to know what God's like. You learn what God is like. Al Martin says, correct ideas or concepts of God, his majesty, his immensity, his holiness, his purity. These are elements of the fear of God so that the more we know about God through his word, through the awesomeness of his creation, we, we learn about God. And the more we study and think about and meditate on who God is, the more we will grow in that fear of God. And this is the area for me in particular in preparing for this that I was really convicted of. Because although I read, and uh, I don't know how much I, I fervently study, but I do read in the scripture pretty regularly, one of the things that I am aware of is how much I feel like I'm in a hurry and I get through it and I'm not just stopping and pondering and thinking about the awesomeness of God that's being displayed in the word, seeing how God interacts with people, seeing his power to to take down his enemies, to see how he loves people. When you read about Christ, see how he loves people, to think about those things and to ponder the things of God And what he's like creates in you a sense of growth in the fear of God. Secondly, he's talking about children here. If we want to teach our children how to fear the Lord, the primary prerequisite is that you fear the Lord. We have to fear the Lord. We have to walk in a way that demonstrates that. So as we in our lives at home are walking in the fear of God, your children begin to see and get a picture of what that looks like to walk in the fear of God. What does it look like to fear God? You know, one of the things that turns kids away oftentimes is just having people say things and not do things. They don't walk, they're talk. You know, they say things, but there isn't the life and the reality in their life. I remember um, a, uh, something Bob Jennings said. It was an interview, actually, with, um, I'll be honest, I think James Jennings was interviewing him about parenting. And... Um, one of the things that just jumped out at me when he was talking, and I'm paraphrasing this, so I don't know that it's exactly right, but it's something to the effect that the decisions that you make in your life and the way you conduct your life and the things that you do as a family speak louder than the mere words that you tell your kids. In other words, what they see you doing and how you make your decisions and the things you're involved with, 
that speaks louder to your kids about the things that are important to you than just saying words to them. And so it's something to really consider. <clears throat> okay, the third point I wanted to bring up is that the fear of God is a main element in our sanctification. It's a main element in our sanctification. And this point and the next point are really related. Uh, but Proverbs 16.6 6 says, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. One keeps away from evil. And then in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So those phrases, keeps away from evil, fear of God keeps away from evil, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's one of the main elements of a life of holiness is to walk in the fear of God. And that's what John Murray, I think it was, said that. The soul, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. <clears throat> he also, uh, Dick mentioned this. I think this applies here. Dick mentioned in Daniel when he gave that message two weeks ago that Daniel lived with awareness of God, an awareness of God. Uh, the way that Al Martin puts it, I really like this too. It's, he says, it's a pervasive sense of the presence of God. And I was thinking about that word pervasive sense. Right now, it's springtime and you're seeing lots of flowers growing up. <clears throat> and you take some of those really sweet smelling flowers that have a real strong aroma, you put them in your house, put them in the table in the kitchen or something, in a vase, and someone walks in, and that smell of that aroma of those sweet flowers pervades the whole house. It penetrates. It just goes through. That's the way it is with the fear of God in the Christian's life. It pervades every area of your life. It pervades the way you... Um, interact at home. It penetrates the way you interact at home with people, the way you are with people at work. All of your relationships are affected, you see, by this sense of the presence of God. God's here. God's here. And that affects how you act. <clears throat> Al Martin says that uh, there isn't any growth in holiness apart from the, a sense of the fear of God, the presence of God. He said, and this was a pretty amazing statement, he said, the measure of growth in an individual and in a church is an increasing awareness of the fear of God, an increasing awareness of God being with you, God being here, God seeing. And then tied to that point, but I gave it a different heading, is that the fear of God affects how we treat people. A person walking in the fear of God, it affects how you treat people. Um, remember Nehemiah was going to rebuild the temple, <clears throat> and uh, 
I just want to read one verse from there in chapter 5 of Nehemiah. It's verse 15. It says, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. So here Nehemiah had the right to do this. This is what everybody was doing. Taking money from the people, kind of lording it over them. The fear of God would not allow him to do that. It was a restraint. I can't treat people like that. God's here. How can I treat people like that? I have to answer to God. And that's that's what he's saying there. <clears throat> See the same idea that Dixman spoke on last week on this Sermon on the Mount and the golden rule. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. It's the same idea. I can't do that. I don't want someone treating me that way. And in Leviticus chapter 19, that's part of the law, 1914, it says, you shall not curse a deaf man nor put a stumbling block before a blind man. You shall revere or fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord, it says. So somebody might say, well, yeah, I can see why you shouldn't put a stumbling block in front of a blind man. He could trip over it and fall and hurt himself. But come on, a deaf man, he can't even hear it when you curse him. He doesn't even know you cursed him. So what difference does it make? The difference is that God hears it. And God sees it. That's the difference. God is here. And that's what he's, that's what controls you. There's an awareness that God is always present and sees everything. And so the question that we have before us, so how is it with us? When nobody else is around that sees except maybe just those closest to us, how do we treat our wives, our children, our parents, our siblings, our roommates, our co-workers? How do we treat those people? Do we, do we treat them as if God was standing right here? He is. He's, he's, he's here. He sees. You can't hide anything from him. And so we need to pray that God would really give us a sense of that, the reality of that. It's real. And we don't walk in the reality of it, but it is real. And so then, let me just conclude briefly with these three things I want to, and I'm just summarizing here. One is we need to pray. And we need to ask God to grow us in more of a sense of the fear of God, a reverence for God. We need to be grown up in that area of just sensing God, an awareness of God. Secondly, oftentimes our growth is going to be tied to the more we learn about God. So as we read the scriptures and as we go for walks in nature and and see the beautiful flowers and the sunset, to take time to thank God for those things and to ponder, take time to ponder 
how great God is in your life. When you read the scriptures, take time to just meditate on a section that just draws the glory from, from the verse just about God and who he is and the wonder of him and just bask in that. Take time to do that. That's, we are always in such a hurry, and I know some of you have very hurried schedules, but we need that. We need that. as a, Our hearts need that. And then thirdly, just to remind ourselves, like I said before, uh, God is always here. Um, <clears throat> there was, so I don't know who said this. Somebody can, might be able to help me here. Practice the presence of God in your life. Practice the presence of God in your life. Because he is. He's there. He sees. Be aware of that, that God is here. And don't do anything in your life that would quench that communion with God. Don't do anything that would squelch that. Remember, he sees and he hears. And if you do, be quick to ask forgiveness, quick to repent, and he will restore that sense that he's with you and you sense his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this word that you have given here today. I pray for myself, Lord, that there would be growth in this area of this sense of your presence and just taking time to ponder and wonder uh, about the glory of of who you are and what you've done and your attributes. We just need that in our life, Lord. Help us to bring honor and glory to you by how we just think about you and how we act towards one another. Be with us now in the remainder of our time here this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.